Whether I'm turkey hunting, scouting, or glassing for game, I never go into the woods without my Vortex Optics. With their VIP warranty, I can go with confidence because it'll replace any glass damaged in the woods. I dropped my binoculars out of the deer stand last fall, and Vortex got me fixed up and back in the tree in no time. Vortex makes the highest quality and affordable rangefinders, binoculars, and scopes on the market. Y'all check them out at vortexoptics.com. You have to speak their language, and their language is pack mentality. That's where a lot of people's problems come from is because they do treat them like a kid a lot of times. And, they, and, I, and I get it. People say, well, he's a member of the family. Totally understand that. But you ha- still have to look at it from a dog's perspective. They don't look at it like that. You're listening to the Ozark Podcast, presented by Inland. We sit down with men and women from the Ozarks that have a passion for the outdoors. Our aim is to listen, learn, and pass along their knowledge and experiences to help you become a better outdoorsman. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kyle B. If you want to watch exclusive full-length video episodes with each of our guests, receive a free Ozark-inspired sticker every single month, and get a shout-out on a future episode, then sign up for the White River Club on our Patreon. The link is in the show notes, and your support goes a long way. As always, don't forget to like and subscribe. Now, here's the episode. What's up, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Ozark Podcast. You've got Kyle V on the mic, as always, and I am joined today by co-host of the show and my good buddy, Adam Treese. How's it going? What's going on, man? Um, and we're sitting here today. We're actually in Decatur. Do you, you wanna, we can talk about it where we're at with our guest here, but yeah. um, we're at this magnificent ranch <laughs> out here in man, Decatur. Man, it's awesome. Driving up, I was like, are we going to Yellowstone right now or... What is it, the Dutton Ranch? <laughs> right. That's what we were talking about as we walked in. We were talking it's, with it's pretty crazy with Brad, the manager of the place, and um, and so I'll actually let our guests talk about it a little bit more. But uh, without further ado, I want to welcome to the podcast the owner and operator of Retriever Ridge Kennels out of Pea Ridge, Arkansas, Mr. Keith Allison. Okay. Keith, thanks for coming on the podcast. You bet. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're uh, we're excited. We've been talking about Adam and I've been talking about having you on the podcast for a while, and um, yep. we've just been going back and trying to find the best time to <laughs> to get together with you. And that's not always easy. <laughs> You're a busy guy. You're a busy guy. Um, so with with that, before we get started and jump into everything, do you kind of want to tell everyone where we're at and what this what yeah. this place is? Yeah. Well, we're we're sitting in the in the middle of the Twelve Stones Ranch. Um, guest house, I guess you'd call it, but it's a part of a very big building. Right. <clears throat> but um, this is a, a beautiful ranch out in Decatur that I've uh, known the owner for years. I've always played travel ball together. And um, um, we've, I've been very fortunate to get to come out here and train dogs for years. It's a beautiful place, beautiful rolling hills. I mean, you can, for, from a dog trainer standpoint, you can run a dog over 700 yards on rolling hills out here and, and still see them. Yeah. And you don't find that very often in, in Northwest Arkansas for mm-hmm. dog training opportunities, but, uh, and some beautiful ponds and things that we use out here. But, uh, when you guys, uh, talked to me about maybe doing this, I thought this would be a perfect venue 
to to do it and for your video and it's just a, a nice setting you know to yeah. to have it and I knew we wouldn't want to be in a noisy dog kennel so. yeah 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 we didn't think about that because our, our original idea was to come out to the kennel yeah, and, yeah. and be, sit down and talk but I, I forgot how loud a kennel is yeah it'd be a lot of barking yeah 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 absolutely so for anyone if um if you're just listening to the audio you won't be able to see it but um if you go to our Patreon website and you you can actually watch the whole video interview on here um. But with that being out, of, you know, kind of out of the way, um, obviously. So Keith, you're you're kind of a you're a nationally acclaimed dog trainer, dog handler. Um, you've won a lot of awards over your 20 plus year career of training dogs and stuff like that. Um, and we'll get into that, and we'll talk about kind of your whole story leading up to that. But just at a really high level, maybe just tell our audience and, and kind of let them in on what Retriever Ridge Kennels is, and, and just a little bit about what you do before we get into your entire story. Yeah, uh, well, Retriever Ridge Kennels is my is my dog training business, and and we offer retriever training services from everything from large breed obedience to advanced gun dogs. Um, do a little bit of boarding, but not not a lot. Our primary focus focus is on the duck dogs primarily, and we get them from all over the country. Um, and and I have been doing this for uh, over I don't know since 1997, basically, as far as the history goes. Um, but, um, we, we keep a full kennel pretty much, uh, all the way from February till about duck season. And then we send all the dogs home for duck season and let everybody hunt. And I like to hunt, so I go hunting. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then about February, we fill back up again and start all over again. That's kind of where we're at right now. As far as the time of the year is we're getting a lot of dogs back in and, and starting the, the training back up for the ones that didn't finish and got a bunch of new ones in and, and uh, you know, just kind of going from there right now. But uh, <clears throat> but anyway, that's that's kind of you know based out of Pea Ridge, Arkansas. Right. And uh, like I say, we keep a full kennel pretty much nine months out of the year from that standpoint, with a waiting list most of the time. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, that's what I figured. I mean, especially you know, um, like I said, we'll get into it. But you've you've trained and worked with um, you know dogs, and you've trained dogs at the highest level there there is, um, and. You know, from what I've what I was reading, and I did a little bit of research on your website and stuff, and um, you've actually trained and worked with dogs and owners from like all fifty states or forty three yeah. of the fifty states, and in a couple yeah. of countries in Europe and yeah, really sure all over the world. People are trying to get a hold of you and get on your waiting list, basically. Yeah, I've been very fortunate through the years to to have pretty much had a client in just about every state in um, you know in the United States. Uh, outside of Hawaii and right. <laughs> Alaska, and, yeah. but um, I had a client from Slovenia in Europe at one point, and um, uh, but yeah, I've been very blessed as far as clients from all over the country and and uh, quality clients and great dogs, and uh, so you know, very much a blessing for sure. Yeah, for you know, for what we do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so let's take me back to uh, maybe just like early early life for you where are you from originally and and how did you get into um duck hunting working with dogs yeah. uh, i know it wasn't your background always but yeah. just t- kind of walk me through your early early story yeah so i'm i grew up in a uh, small town southeast arkansas called mcgee arkansas okay <laughs> and most of my family farmed in that area and, and so we we grew up around the rice fields and and uh, mostly deer hunting back then i mean most of my family deer hunted and uh, my dad had bird dogs when I was a kid, and that's kind of what I grew up around was pointers and setters. And mm-hmm. so I've always been around dogs at some point. Yeah. And 
um, all my uncles and cousins, you know, they, it, I always kid them that if it, they, if it ran, they had a dog to chase it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so they'd have coon dogs and rabbit dogs, squirrel dogs, you know, you name it, they had it. Mm. <clears throat> so I've always kind of had a deep rooted tradition in, in dogs. Right. And very motivated by that. Um, you know, just really have en- enjoyed it my whole life. And, um, so it's not surprising to most people that have known me since I was a kid that I'm training dogs right, right. now. You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I grew up in southeast Arkansas. Uh, long story short, um, moved away. Went off. Went. Uh, started doing physical therapy and uh, did sports medicine for a number of years in Little Rock and uh, had Scotty Pippen as a yeah as a uh, I wanted to ask you about that a, cl- a client yeah <laughs> at one point so you got to work with him and, and how how far in your career had you been you know how long have you been doing physical therapy by the time you got to work with Scotty and maybe some of the other Razorback players you got to work with the university pretty, a little pretty bit? early in the, I mean it was early 90s back then so okay it was very early but uh, I worked at a very a high-end sports medicine clinic in Little Rock, and we had back then it was the that was the hub. If you were injured, you know most of the Razorbacks back then came there. They didn't really have the facilities that they have in Northwest Arkansas now. That you know back then, and so um, Scotty came in for a treatment. Uh, happened to know a friend of it was a friend of mine, but he was the treasurer of the Scotty Pippen Foundation, and he uh, back when Scotty was with the Bulls, he had injured his back. And and you see that in the in the uh, episode of uh, the Last Dance where right. he was hurt, and it was kind of neat to see that when he was hurt, we were actually treating him. Yeah. <laughs> during that time, mm-hmm. and uh, anyway, he came in. We treated him several treatments, and uh, not the whole time, but we had him for several treatments, and uh, ended up playing basketball with him one night. <laughs> That's uh, pretty cool. Not yeah. a lot of people get to say that. Yeah, Hard- yeah, yeah, hardly. Yeah, especially well, dog trainers, I'd imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So. Uh, the the short story of that is uh, my friend that that knew Scotty. He said uh, he said, "Hey, you want to play basketball tonight?" And, and of course, I'm like, well, "I don't really play basketball that much." And, <laughs> and I'm like, "Why would I go, want to do that?" And he goes, "Well, we're going to play with Scotty." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, yeah, I'll go." <laughs> yeah. So we sure. met him at the Little Rock Athletic Club, and I think we played three on three or something like that with some other guys. And there was a couple of guys in there that were. They were kind of trying to show that they were very much, you know, mm-hmm. capable of playing in the NBA, NBA against Scotty. Yeah, he pretty sure. much schooled them the whole time they were in there. And, mm, but, and but I pretty much just inbounded the ball to them. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but we had, uh, we had uh, a lot of the uh, Razorbacks back then, um, a lot of uh, football players. Uh, I'm trying yeah. to think off the top of my head. Um, some of the guys from the early – Oh, late 80s, early 90s on the football team back then. We had Todd Day from the basketball team. Mm-hmm. Corliss Williamson was a patient oh, of ours cool. back then. Very cool. Um, I'm trying to remember. There were several of the running mm-hmm. backs that I'm just drawing a blank on right now. And uh, we had uh, Keith Jackson, who was with the uh, Packers back then. He played it. He's from Little Rock, but he was played OU football. Okay. And uh, he played with the Miami Dolphins. And so we had a lot of the pros that were in the area who came for treatment and uh, even had one of the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders at one time. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, anyway, just a lot of different, uh, everything from celebrities to high school students and, you know, and uh, really enjoyed that time in my life. And, uh, but um, going back to my, where I started duck hunting, really, I didn't really grow up duck hunting. I grew up deer hunting and, and with family and, and coon hunting and doing that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And uh, really, my first exposure to duck hunting was when uh, me and my best friend, we, my uncle had a rice field, and his grandparents had a field that butted up right against it. And he said, there's a bunch of ducks on your uncle's rice field back here. He said, well, 
you want to go back there and let's jump them? Yeah. <laughs> and I was okay, you know. And, and of course, it's pouring down rain. I don't know. We were in some stupid looking slicker suits and, you know, just look silly with the boonie hats. Oh, and all, yeah. You know, yeah. Well, I still have the picture, but I won't show it to anybody. It really, oh, that's cool. Really dumb. You might have to send it to us after. Yeah, it's never going to leave the house. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember uh, we walked up and snuck up on those ducks in that rice field and got, we were really close to them. And it was just a wall of mallards got up. Wow, I man. mean, just a wall of mallards. So and cool. I think we emptied our guns and maybe killed one. <laughs> <laughs> so Humble that was, beginning. yeah, but that was really, I mean, that right there was probably what hooked me on, on duck hunting. I mean, mm. that was just like, wow, you know. And, yeah. and again, you know, I grew up in a time when uh, my dad was uh, quail hunting and, and doing those things. And, um, but there was something about that wall of mallards that just, I was just like, that's it. Yeah. You know, I've got to, I've got to figure this out, you know, and, and it kind of started from there. And, uh, my love of duck hunting eventually turned into, uh, me, you know, wanting a dog mm-hmm. like most people. Yeah. You know, I needed something to go get my, my ducks. <laughs> right. And, um, um, but prior to that, back when I was still doing therapy, i I was tinkering with dogs a little bit even yeah. earlier, way back, even before I ever started any kind of dog training for myself. Okay. Um, best friend had a Labrador, and I got the water dog book like most people get mm-hmm. and, you know, start reading through that and trying to mess with him and train him and actually, you know, did a decent job, you know, not anything compared to these days, right. standards by any means, but mm-hmm. it was fun, you know, and I just knew I liked that. And as as time went on and uh, eventually um, – got married and I told I told my wife you know I said I really I want to get a, a really good well-bred dog and and uh train it to be as good as it can be and and you know I just wanted it to be as good as it could be and uh, <clears throat> long story short got a dog out of Canada his name was Cosmo mm. and a uh, big 95 pound chocolate Labrador mm. he was I always called him a Ferrari with four-wheel drive and big mud tires because <laughs> he was he was a freight train. Dude. Yeah, like Zion Williamson of dogs. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, he was, <laughs> yeah, he was a horse. But um, got hooked in the hunt test game and uh, helped, uh, helped really start the Ozarks Hunting Retriever Association here in Northwest Arkansas. Yeah. Was in on the, the early, early years, you know, when we first got it going. And um, ran hunt tests for years and, um, you know, title dogs and, and all the different levels of, Grand hunting retriever champions and uh, master hunting retrievers, master hunters, that sort of thing, and and that turned into running into the ESPN Super Retriever Series. Right. And uh, back then was we actually ran the very first ESPN Super Retriever Series back mm. then. And um, Cosmo turned out to be he was the first chocolate male to ever make a finals of the Super Retriever Series. Okay. Back what, then. what year was that? That was about two thousand. Okay. I think. I believe it was somewhere 2000 or 01, I believe, was the first uh, Super Retriever Series they had. Yeah. And um, anyway, we um, we were in we were in on that early and back then and just kind of went, you know, we were finalists and semifinalists in it with multiple dogs throughout the years. I did it for a long time. Ended up being a, um, a semifinalist in the 2004 ESPN Great Outdoor Games. And um, so as far as dog trainers as a whole, the, fo- the guys that were in those early days of the Super Retriever Series, excuse me, um, it was on ESPN on Saturday mornings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so prime that's time. like prime time. I loved yeah. watching those. It was Saturday mornings, Bassmaster Classics yeah. or dog training. <laughs> yeah. I loved watching those. Yeah, so we were, from a, from a you know, a, a dog trainer standpoint, it was 
you know, you, there's priceless to be standing with your back to a camera and your logo of your business on your back mm-hmm. yeah. uh, on Saturday morning ESPN. So it, it really launched a lot of dog trainers' uh, careers back then, you right. know. And uh, But did that for a long time and um, um, had multiple dogs in the finals and semifinals. Um, was unfortunate. Never never won one, uh, but it was very close several times. Yeah. <laughs> Just got a R- bad luck. Remind yeah. me, how many dogs qualify for this uh, championship, I guess? Well, it depends. Things have changed now okay. these, these days. Back then, so back then it was a little different. It was very different back in those early days because um, – Nobody really knew how to run run it or compete in it mm-hmm. because it was brand new. It was like a hybrid. It was a hybrid of hunt tests and field trials. And so they were just kind of throwing the kitchen sink at us. I mean, from you didn't know what to expect. I mean, it could be just a hodgepodge of anything that they wanted to throw at you because <laughs> they made their own rules. Right. right? But it, that was also what made it fun, too. That yeah, made it entertaining for people to watch on TV, Yeah, too. It, was, it was great. <laughs> oh, yeah. But standing up there, it was, yeah. you know, you're sweating bullets. <laughs> I you bet know, you are, yeah. Waiting for a dog to make you look like an idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Run circles. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, but but um, it was a lot of fun back then. And But nobody really knew how to work the scoring system back then. We always were trying okay. to run it. If you were a field trialer, you were trying to run it like a field trialer would. If you were a hunt test guy, you were trying to handle your dog like a hunt test and really – we didn't understand the strategy yeah. until everybody had run it for a few years, and then you started to understand the point system and things like that. So you actually handled your dog a little differently as time went on. Okay. Um, but um, but back then you could only take. And I, I may get this wrong because it's been so long now. But back then you could only take one or two dogs to the finals. Like if you if you had multiple dogs, and they, they had a limit on how many you could bring back then. Okay. And, and actually, it was invitation only in the very beginning. Was it? Are there, like, qualifying events leading up to the – is it the SRS? Yes. Okay, uh-huh. and that's Super Retriever Series. Uh-huh. It's yeah. like the Super Bowl of yeah. dog retrieving. Yeah, okay. yeah. So uh, uh, back then it was it was different okay. than it is nowadays. Okay. Nowadays there's, uh, you can carry a lot of dogs with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but back then, I mean, they you had to, you had to choose what you were going to do. And if you made the finals – if you had three dogs made the finals, you could either you could only take one or two. I don't remember, but I do remember at one point when they I know they allowed us to take two at one point, and myself and another trainer out of Tennessee were the first people to ever have two dogs qualify for a finals back then. Oh man! So you know, being in the the startup days of that, there's a lot of firsts. You yeah. Know, and, mm-hmm. um, um, I, I had a dog uh, years ago that he was. Uh, I think it's just him and maybe one other dog ever scored a perfect score in a Super Trooper Series, which mm-hmm. is a score of zero. It's like golf, you know, the lower you score, the better. Okay, yeah. And um, and he actually scored a zero, which was just unheard of. That's crazy. Back then, I mean, they would find a reason to give you at least two points or something, but, yeah, you know, it just was... And they're scoring you based on um, mistakes made, basically. So you get points or faults if you right. if your dog makes a mistake. Yeah, and also they give you points for every time you blew a whistle. So okay. uh, let's say you had a blind retrieve. Well, if somebody's dog came up there and, and what we call lined the blind, he ran straight to it. Mm. Um, and if he didn't get off line by much, then that technically that should be a perfect score, zero. Okay. But if you got up there and blew one whistle to stop him and gave him a hand signal and he got it on one cast, technically that's a five-point penalty because you blew one whistle. Mm. So each whistle was five points back then. 
And the judges could come up with different stuff as time went on. You know, they could say, okay, if you go to the left of the log, instead of going over the log, it's a 50-point penalty to, you know, they could do what they wanted to do. So you had to kind of start figuring out the strategy in your head a little bit. Okay, do I roll the dice and let him go around it and take the 50-point penalty and and uh, see how the rest of the test turns out? Or, you know, you got – sometimes you were lucky enough to not run early and you could watch other dogs mm-hmm. run. Right, and, see how much wiggle room you yeah, had. Yeah, that's right. You kind of started planning your – the way you were going to run the dog, you yeah. know, and the way you would run him wasn't always the way you would run him in training or a field trial or a hunt test, you know, it was just, you played the numbers basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was just, a, it's just, just, just different. Yeah. You know? So to be able to have a perfect score, what does a run like that look like? And, and I'm not super familiar um, with how the tests go. Basically, do you mind explaining that? It's like yeah. a fake hunt basically. Yeah. It's a simulated, well, so nowadays they have it set up where they have like a hunt test scenario, they have a field trial scenario, and they have what they call a hunt savvy scenario. So the hunt savvy can be anything that's very similar to a true hunt. I mean, okay. it can get silly, you know, six birds down and a diving duck and some other things, you know. Okay. And the field trial stuff is going to be a lot more longer in terms of distance, a lot tighter in terms of uh, technicality and uh, complexity and that sort of thing, and your hunt test is going to be more about steadiness and um, the marks are not as far, the blinds aren't as far, and and that sort of thing. And um, but um, um, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> and water involved too, and just the hunts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the field trial, yeah, obviously. But yeah, you'd have yeah, you'd have. So uh, as, as you were asking what uh, you get a perfect score yeah what does that look like so just to give you an example this dog on uh what he got a perfect score on is what we call a poison bird blind and so a poison bird blind is basically let's say you're hunting and you shot two birds down we'll just say one is laying there dead and it's really close to the dog and we've got one that's crippled and it's swimming off and we need the dog to get that one but he wants to pick up the one that's closest to mm-hmm. him okay yeah. well in a in a, a competition a field trial or a hunt test or the super retriever series if the dog picks up that that bird first he's out disqualified yeah okay so this scenario was a poison bird land blind so they basically had planted a bird at the end of this field and it was and again the super retriever series sometimes the distances were just silly you know <laughs> yeah uh, this was this was we even did a 600 yard single one time, which was insane. It was it was fun, but it's crazy. 600 you know, yards, you can barely see your dog. All oh the way down yeah, there. it was it was it was a lot of fun, but yeah. you would never see that in a in a field trial or no. definitely not a hunt test. Yeah, but um, so this was a I think it was a 450 yard as far as the distance 450 yards, what we call a 450 yard poison bird land blind, and off to the right at about let's just say um, probably 350 yards off to the right and probably 15, 20 yards off of the straight line to where that bird was planted. Okay. They had snow goose decoys off that line sitting off to the side. So you had these big white snow geese decoys sitting out there (laughs) in the middle of the field. So it's just this huge visual attraction, you know, (laughs) sitting out there. Yeah. And they had three guys with shotguns. And, of course, we had to use the rubber ducks for TV because – uh, ESPN wouldn't allow you to use live birds or okay. anything like that. So, um, so they simulated a live, what would we would call a live flyer shot in like a field trial. So in a field trial, they would shoot a live bird, and they usually have two to three gunners out there to make sure the bird gets killed. You know, okay, yeah, and it falls in the right spot. So they simulated a live flyer is what they did. So they 
and three guys stand up and they got white coats on and they empty their shotguns at this bird. And you basically, once the bird hit the ground, you had to, to tell your dog no. So you knowed them off of it mm. and lined them up to run the blind retrieve. And a blind retrieve, for anyone listening, is just a bird the dog didn't see fall. Mm, okay. So if you're hunting, you shoot a bird, dog didn't see it fall. Well, that's what we call blind retrieve. He's got to find it. Well, we'll we're going to line them up. We have, it becomes a team effort at that point. So the dog is has got to listen to us. He's got to take a straight line from our side on a on a back command, and then he has to hold a straight line. And there's a whole bunch of things that cause the dog to get off straight line. Mm-hmm. A big, you know, twelve uh, white snow geese sitting out there is one factor <laughs> that would cause them to suck over toward the snow geese. You know, so they had a lot of things including that shot flyer simulation that would cause a dog to pull off to the right. Mm, okay. Well, this dog that I was running, his name was Mac. Um, he walks up there, and I lined him up. He watched the shot and knowed him off of it, turned him toward the blind, told him dead bird. And, I mean, he looked out there exactly where I wanted him to look. And when I said back, you could draw a chalk line from mm. where he left to where that bird was at 450 yards, and looked like he put it out there himself. Yeah. I mean, just Holy what we call lined it. He ran straight to it. And he ran it as hard as you could throw him a fun bumper in the yard. That's mm-hmm. what was really nice and, you know, fun to watch because mm-hmm. he was flying across that field. Yeah. And the whole time I'm just sitting there going, you got to be kidding me. I mean, he was just straight as a string. Yeah, you're probably trembling, waiting just oh, yeah. for something yeah, to I was, blow your whistle. Oh, out. yeah. I'm just sitting there just, you know, I had to whistle my mouth thinking he is going to, He's going to go to the right here in a minute. You know, you kept watching the dog's head to see if they were even thinking about going to the right at all, and he never wavered. I mean, he mm. just was rocking along there and picked that bird up, and it was really neat. I mean, everybody's clapping and, you know, and yeah. all that. It was just fun. That's insane. You, know, you don't see that very often. Yeah. I think the dog in front of him had just done it in one or two whistles, and he was a trainer friend of mine. I won't mention his name, but <laughs> okay. a lot of people know him, yeah. and, and he's a friend of mine, and, um, and I still give him a hard time about this today. <laughs> And I'm standing in the holding blind behind him, and he ran it, and the dog did a great job. I mean, it was a lot of dogs were having a really hard time with it. Some dogs didn't even finish it. Mm-hmm. And and uh, we always poke fun <laughs> at each other, you know, sure, just yeah. over the years. Yeah. And and he, he one whistled it or two whistled it or something like that, and he turned around and he goes, get you some of that, you know, just <laughs> having fun, you know. And and when Mac lined that, he was standing back there, and he was clapping, too. He turned around, and I said, get you some of that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right back at you, man. Even without the poison oh. bird in that scenario, a 450-yard blind yeah. with no corrections oh, yeah. made is, is very impressive. Yeah, it's, So with that, the poison bird is just unreal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was really even, – even as many dogs as I've trained, to watch that, you know, it, it's just – fun you never get tired of seeing a dog at that level perform to their capability Mm -hmm. and when all the you know all the cards fall in your favor and sometimes you need a little luck too I mean sometimes the wind can shift on a situation like that or the lighting can change in a situation like that and and it can go from really good for some dogs to really bad for the next group of dogs that come along just by Mm -hmm. the changes of conditions you know or start raining or something who knows yeah but um so, I mean, you know, it was, you know, you got to have a little bit of luck. Yeah. But you do have to have a well-trained retriever in, or, in order to even consider doing something like that. But it just never gets old to me to watch any dog, any dog from a, a puppy, you know, that finally chases their first live pigeon to watching a finished, fully trained dog that's a, 
you know, qualified all age level field trial dog or, you know, open amateur field trial dog go out there and do something that you just, your jaw hits the ground watching what those dogs are capable of. And the thing that's really cool for me is that, you know, that day in and day out, those dogs, they give you everything they've got. I mean, unconditionally. Mm-hmm. Every day they come out and they work their tails off for you every day. And so it's really neat to even see other trainers' dogs do well. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just trainers, you know, if you're in it for the right reasons, you're in it because you love the dogs and you enjoy seeing them progress. And, and it's really just neat to watch any dog, even if you're not the one handling them, go up there and smack a test, or, you know, or, or even hunting, you know, see some dog that's a young dog that has still learning what hunting is. He's been training, you know, for the last six to nine months and he goes on his first hunt and he's sitting out there in the dark going, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Why am I out here? Yeah. I don't have a clue why we're out here, you know? Yeah. And then the first group of ducks comes in and, and the shots go off, and, and he actually starts to go, oh, wait a minute. You mean mm-hmm. that stuff flying around up there is what yeah. I get to go pick up? Yeah. And the light bulb goes off. Now they're watching the sky. Yeah, they're you know? into it. Yeah, I mean, it's just stuff like that for me. Is It doesn't matter if you're competing and or hunting. For me, it's watching that dog just go, okay, I know why I'm out here. And then to be able to do the things that they're trained to do and do it well. And, you know, this just, it's just cool. It's so cool. Yeah. I mean... So I, I've got a dog myself, and he's a he's a GSP, and he's very much a house dog. You know, he's I haven't trained him. He's not a gun dog by any means. He's a big cuddly bear, basically. <laughs> um, but I can only imagine to be able to when you were talking about lining Mac. Is that his name? Mm-hmm. Lining Mac mm-hmm. up. There's got to be some level of uh, trust and confidence, and in, in that level of communication that you have to have for him to be able to trust you. Yeah. Well enough to run at a dead sprint for 450 yards in one direction. Yeah. How do you how do you get that trust and how do you communicate so well with those dogs? Well, uh, the, that's not a short answer. <laughs> okay, yeah. but I will I'll give you. I mean, what I tell people is there's some analogies that you can use. Uh, one is uh, it's like building a house. I mean, you have to start with a foundation. So you're starting, you know, as a puppy. You know, I always tell people there's to me there's four phases of training. You got puppy development, which to me is about eight weeks old to six months of age. And then you get into basic training, which is your fundamentals. And uh, that's from, takes about six, five to six months to go through that whole process. And that's all the tools that they need in order to learn how to run a blind. So, so you've got puppy development, you've got basics, then you have the transition training, and then you have advanced training. So <clears throat> that's your four groups of training, basically. So puppy development's about eight weeks old when you get the puppy. And if you're sending the dog off to a trainer, they're going to go at about six months old because they've got their permanent teeth in at that point. Okay. And then at that point, the dog starts the the dirt work of the house. I mean, you really you start it with puppy development, but it's like building a house. You got to do the dirt work. You got to do the foundational stuff, and you got to put the plumbing in. I mean, you, and then you're framing the the structure of the home, and then you're you're you know you're adding the roof and all that. Yeah. And another analogy I use is like teaching a kid math and you know everybody wants a finished dog you know they know what they want their dog to look like mm-hmm. they know they want it to be steady they know they want it to wait and you know be sent you know when it's told to stop on a whistle hand signals that sort of thing a lot of times they start there and that's where a lot of their problems come from but i tell people you're starting you're trying to teach a kid algebra start, algebra by starting at algebra mm-hmm. it didn't work you got to start with one plus one yeah mm-hmm. and that's where people 
run into their most pro- most of their problems is they try to start at algebra and then they start wondering, okay, why is he doing this? Well, how do I fix that? Well, I'll tell them you tried to put the roof on the house and you haven't even done the dirt work yet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so it's very important that you start with one plus one and you start teaching. So it's it's a matter of uh, there's a whole curriculum we take the dogs through, and that curriculum involves building blocks. Everything is a building block. So things that we're doing in basics are things that we're going to, they're tools that we're going to use to teach the dog how to run a blind retrieve in the transition training. So we have to teach the dog to be obedient with obedience. And if we're, if you use an e-collar, we e-collar condition them. Then we go through the force fetch process, which teaches them don't chew the bird up, basically, mm-hmm. you know, pick it up when I tell you to hold it, give it to me on command when I want it, you know, and, um, and then you go through pile work in the yard where they're lining to a pile of bumpers. We teach them how to cast with hand signals in the yard. And then eventually when they're good at that in the yard up close, then we make it longer and bigger in what we call the double T on land. And then that turns into the swim by drill. So everything we're doing, we're basically putting tools in the dog's tool belt that allows us to, to stop him and make him change directions Mm -hmm. and control his mouth and control his manners Mm -hmm. in a nutshell. Yeah. And so at that point, we're getting into transition training. That's where we start teaching a dog how to basically how to run blinds without going into a lot of explanation. And then your advanced training is really when you get into your field trial, hunt test, SRS, really technical, complex concepts and that sort of thing. Yeah. But to get a dog to confidently run a 450-yard, I mean, you're talking about this dog was a three-year-old dog. Mm-hmm. You know, He was already a, a master hunter at that time. He had actually run some derbies in field trials. And so he had some experience from that standpoint, hunted a little bit, but he knew that concept. He knew what he was looking at out there because we had trained on that a lot. So he understood that. And so he fell back on all the training we put into him. And then we, thankfully, we didn't have any bad luck, you know, to get Mm -hmm. to that point. But again, getting to that level, it takes consistency and time and and perspiration <laughs> yeah. on your part and, and fairness and 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 correcting and teaching the dog and knowing when to push and when to back off and and every dog is different you can't have a cookie cutter process of of you know if you got two dogs of your own both of them are different you you have the same curriculum but you can't have the same approach always depending on the dog one might be dominant one might be submissive one might be tough one might be sensitive one might have high drive, one might have okay drive, you know. So your approach to teaching one plus one is different, just like you teach a kid, you know, math in school. It can't be the same thing for the whole class. Right, yeah. You got to kind of tailor it to the dog. That's right. What what are some of the dogs, I mean, you've you've worked with hundreds, thousands of dogs. I don't know how many. A, a lot. I don't remember. I've lost <laughs> yeah. count over the years. Are there some favorites or, or some some dogs that really um, stand out and, and just, I mean, can you even have favorites when working with so many? Or do you have some that really just uh, you, you remember in, in a special way? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, they're all special to me. I mean, and some of them are extra special. <laughs> and, um, but uh, thankfully, I'm able to pick and choose the dogs. I have qualifications for dogs that come in. So I take dogs that have the, they have the potential to be good duck dogs. Okay. I don't want people spending money on a dog that's not going to work out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not a good investment for them. It's not uh, fair to try to make the dog do something they don't want to do. And I'm not going to beat my head against the wall trying to, you know, fit a square peg in a round hole either. Yeah, you right. Know? But um, favorites, dogs that 
to me, the dogs that put out effort, you know, that when you see a dog that's given, like I said a while ago, when you have a dog that's just kind of giving their all every day and they're, they're all favorites to me. But as far as standouts, um, you know, I was fortunate to get to train two dogs that were on two Arkansas State duck stamps. Got them okay. in my pocket right here. Yeah. Who's that? Yeah. That's Steel. Oops. Yeah, so that's the that's the uh, this year's uh, Arkansas State Duck Stamp. That's Steel, mm. and um, she actually slept in the bed with my kids when she was uh, mm-hmm. growing up. Um, and she's old now, um, but uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I trained her. So that's this year's Duck Stamp. Uh huh. Yeah. And so how did how did that even come to happen? And you said that's the second one you've had on a Duck uh-huh. Stamp. Yeah. And so the 2010 Arkansas State Duck Stamp, uh, I trained that dog. His name was Lucas. Okay. Um, he belonged to a client of mine and, and a friend that I duck hunt with. And um, uh, it was just, you know, I don't, I don't, it's luck, I guess, from my standpoint, yeah. you know, getting to, you know, it's kind of cool to have, be a part of a little bit of the duck stamp history, you know, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. In a, oh, yeah. in a roundabout way, I guess you'd say. But um, I knew, I just happened to know both owners and, you know, just through the years of connecting with people and, um and it just kind of luck, I guess you'd say, more than anything. But yeah. Does Game and Fish, do they just pick a random dog? or They usually pick uh, the painter. Is I think that's the okay. way they normally that's do how, it. That's what artist. I was going to ask. Like, when was that picture taken? Um, I don't know about the one with Steel, but mm-hmm. I was with, now the 2010 Arkansas State Duck Stamp with Lucas. I was there when we took the photo for that. And uh, Philip Crow was the artist. Mm-hmm. And uh, Philip hunted with us at the at the Greenbrier Duck Club. And... Um, uh, my uh, good friend and client, Bobby Martin, uh, he's a Game and Fish Commissioner right now. Okay. Yeah, that was his dog, Lucas, back then. And um, so uh, Philip had been chosen by the Game and Fish in 2010 to paint. Uh, they wanted a, a black Labrador, and uh, they commissioned Philip to do the, the uh, art. And so Lucas was just a beautiful, big 95-pound brute. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you hear the stories about Secretariat. He would always pose when the cameras <laughs> would go by. Yeah. Lucas would pose. <laughs> I mean, literally. All you had to do was hold a duck up a certain way, and he would close his mouth and totally focus on that bird. And if you wanted to move his head a little bit one way, all you had to do was move the duck. <laughs> and he would turn his head. And so it was kind of a neat story, but um, Philip had wanted the dog to be standing on the log and looking a certain direction, and it was my job to get him to stand on the log and not sit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it, I wish there had been somebody there videoing it because it was quite the rodeo. I bet. It sounds like it. Oh, it was funny. We laugh about it to this day, but it, it's a great story and a great memory for me as well. But uh, two great dogs and, you know, just blessed. Um, Cosmo, for me, was probably the one that, you know, if if yeah, I always tell people you get you really get an opportunity to have one good dog that you truly connect with in mm. your life, mm. and I've had a lot of great dogs. I yeah. mean, I've had dogs that were better uh, better at running field trial stuff than he was, or better at you know different things. If you want to pick it apart, you could. But in terms of a dog that I connected with and was just an all around great dog, and he was beautiful, and um, he was it. You know, I mean, he was just he, you know it's like. You, he would talk to you almost, you know. He'd he'd look at you and kind of do something silly, you know, and you knew what he wanted. And, right. You know, he'd just do comical things. Like, you know, way back in the day, everybody had those ficus trees in the corner, you know, and, mm. and you know, it never failed. He hated flies, and if a fly got on him, he would always just, you know, he'd, want to, he'd try to bite it, you know. <laughs> and it got to where if he saw a fly anywhere, he was going to get it. 
and he'd always go look at the ficus tree for, for the fly. You know, it became a game to him. You know, you could yeah. tell him, where's the fly? And he'd go look over the ficus tree for some reason. But he would actually get to the point where he'd point a fly. He would, no way. Yeah, I, I wish that, you know, we didn't have cell phone cameras back then. But uh, back then, he, I, 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 I saw him one day, and he was literally two inches from this fly. I mean, staring <laughs> at it. You know, his nose was right there, and, and I could see. He wasn't moving. He was just kind of locked in on it. Mm. And he kind of cut his eyes. He gave me the old side eye. You know, he kind of looked over at me like, what do you want me to do? And yeah. I'm like, I went, get it. And he just <laughs> chomped down his flies. Just silly stuff. But, he, I mean, he was he was just an all-around great dog that I, I guided to Prairie Wings Duck Club for years with him and several other dogs. A dog named Abby I had was a grand hunter, retriever champion, master hunter. Uh, one of the best dogs that I probably ever ran um, It belonged to a client of mine. It was a dog named Slim, and he was a, a qualified all-age field trial dog. Uh, ran in some derbies. Uh, he was a, a grand hunter retriever champion, master hunter. Uh, made the finals and semifinals multiple times in the Super Retriever Series, and we were so close so many times to winning it. Uh, I know one time I screwed it up. Yeah, really? <laughs> you know, um, should have blown a whistle when I didn't and kind of rolled the dice, and it cost me, you know, second place. You know, it cost mm. me first place and yeah. ended up second. But um, that dog literally, he ran so straight that you could just about pick out a blade of Johnson grass somewhere and say, that's where I want him to go. And you could convince him to, to go there. I mean, it, that's how straight he ran. He just wow. was a just phenomenal lining dog. And even if he didn't see the birds, he didn't have to. I mean, he ran so straight, you just point him in the direction. And if it was 300 yards, then, you know, he actually scored, I think he actually scored a two in a super retriever series uh, in South Dakota. He lined a big blind, land blind that they had. It was up and over these hills and on a side hill and way up there, and dogs were popping out way off to the right. You lost sight. It was just crazy what dogs were doing, and he came up there, and I think I blew one whistle. Actually, he lined the blind at the very top of the hill. This The blind was at the very top, and the only reason I blew the whistle because dogs were going over the top of the hill and handlers were losing them. They were kind of rolling the dice oh, yeah. and going, I don't want to blow a whistle here and get five points. And right. actually the dog was on the wrong side of the blind and they lost him and the dog popped out way off and it turned into a mess. Oh man. And I blew what we call a safety whistle. It's like, I'm not letting you go over that hill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right here at it. So I blew the whistle and handled him. But mm-hmm. It was like a two, but he was an incredible dog. Yeah. And, um, you know, those dogs lived to be, 10 to 14 years old, you know, so, you know, had them for, for years and, mm. um, but just had a lot of, a lot of great dogs through the years and, you know, some of them competed, some of them didn't, some of them titled, some of them didn't. I mean, I've got, I don't run hunt test anymore now. I don't okay. run SRS anymore. And I really, I've, uh, at my age, I like to stay home and, and really spend time with my family and, um, uh, you know, go to the lake on the weekends now, yeah. whereas used to, I'd be on the road, uh, running, you know, somewhere and, um, and uh, just choose to stay home now and, and train duck dogs, yeah. basically. Yeah. Mm. And so for a couple of years, you actually kind of stepped away from dog training, right? I actually stepped away for about eight years. Okay. And went back doing physical therapy. Yeah. Um, I, my son and, and daughter, mainly my son at the time, he was really getting into travel baseball. And uh, I was getting a little burnout, to be honest. Uh, been, we had been doing traveling a lot and gone a lot of weekends. And... Um, I just was at that point where I didn't want to miss out on all those those years of him playing ball, you know. And it's like I, I told my wife, I said, 
I don't want to be the dad never was around. You yeah. know, you only get one opportunity to raise your kids. And so they'd be gone to a tournament while I was gone to a hunt test running dogs. And, you know, and it just was eating me alive, you know. And, and fortunately, I still had a you know, physical therapy degree that I could fall back on. So I actually stepped away from dog training for about eight years and got my kids raised. And uh, my son's a junior in college now and my daughter's a senior in high school now. But I, I had, for all those years that I was out, I, I always had the itch still. You know, I got out for mm-hmm. the right reasons. Right. And, um, but I, the itch never left me. Even when I got out, you know, it, uh, business was good and um, people, some people thought I was crazy, but I also had a lot of people that said, hey, you're doing the right thing as well. Right. And don't regret it at all because, you know, you don't get those years back. And so I was able to be there for all the games and all the hitting lessons. Mm-hmm. And my daughter got into uh, barrel racing, you know, with horses oh, as cool. she got a little older and yeah. we did that with her. And they've all, you know, they've aged out all that now. But all those years that I was out, I always had people that would, message me and just say, hey, if you ever get back into training, let me know. Mm. You know, I had people that I'd trained dogs for in the past, and they'd say, if you don't, let me know. If you ever decide to get back, let me know. I'm, I want to send you another dog. You know, I, I sent a dog to another trainer, and it didn't go as well as I'd hoped or something, you know. But I just knew that there was a lot of positive feedback, and, and I knew there was a lot of people out there that were would support it. Right. And And so I told my wife, one day I said, I think I want to start back up again. You know, I just, I just, you know, once you're a dog mm-hmm. trainer, it never really leaves you. I, I know guys that have gotten out and they're still out and they still send me pictures of a pond somewhere that's got some point on it. <laughs> and then they go, I'd really like to run a blind across that. Or, <laughs> it's just an itch that it never goes away. Yeah. You know, once you, once you start it, it never goes away. And, um, and so my wife was very supportive of, of it and I quietly, um, got back in and uh, had to um, rebrand everything basically. Yeah. Uh, because when I got out, we had uh, the other business that I had, we dissolved it. And uh, uh, so I had to kind of start things over a little bit from that standpoint. And that's uh, really where I started Retriever Ridge Kennels. Right. And, um, but uh, it's been great. I mean, it's the, I, I, I said I got in it, I got back in quietly. I literally didn't tell anybody. And, <laughs> Next thing I know, I'm getting texts from trainer friends of mine all over the country. You're going, hey, word on the street, you're back training again. <laughs> yeah, that's, like, that's how I heard about just somebody was like that I hunted with. It was like, do you know Keith Allison? I was like, no. <laughs> and he's like, well, he's one of the best dog trainers I know, and he just got back in the game. <laughs> so uh, short, long story short, that's how I met Keith. Right. Um, yeah. I was in the middle of training Grace, and... I was looking for frozen birds, and he yeah. said that you might have some, so yeah. ran out to your kennel. and Yeah, had a good visit. Yeah, spent two or three hours out there <laughs> with you, yeah. and it was really cool. Yeah, but it just was, um, you know, like I said, quiet, quietly got back in. I really didn't want to advertise. I just kind of wanted to let it grow on its own and just kind of organically, you know, just let it do whatever it was going to do. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, it kind of went a lot faster than I thought. Yeah. Well, with a resume like yours, I'm sure people are knocking on your door trying to get in. <laughs> well, it was it was nice. I mean, just to to be out for that long, and you know, it's like you know, once you've trained dogs, it's a little like riding a bike. You never you don't ever forget how to do it. You yeah. Know? And so again, I just I didn't want to get hit with a lot of dogs all at once. Was my main concern, and because I wanted to just ease back into it and and make sure I was doing a good job with the dogs that were coming in and just let it just kind of word of mouth grow a little bit. And it really took off. Yeah. 
uh, and it's really been great. I mean, it's just been a blessing to, you know, to have. And, um, you know, it's just something, you know, I consider it a, a gift from God, basically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So from starting that back up, when when did you kind of get back into it? When did you start Retriever Ridge? Oh, let's see. It's, uh, let's see. I guess it's been almost uh, right at three years now since I, since I got back in. Okay, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And how how has you so you're it sounds like you're kind of running a little bit smaller operation you're maybe a little bit more selective with how you pick dogs how do you go about that process of um, accepting a client accepting a dog to come to your kennel sure well again like I said earlier my main concern is that that someone's got a dog that's worth investing money in because it's you know I don't want to take someone's money if it's the dog's not cut out for the job and so. Um, a lot of times I help people find puppies. There'll be a lot of people that, that will contact me and say, hey, I'm looking for litter, I'd like to get a puppy, and I'll point them in the right direction. You know, if I don't have it, I can find it. I've got other trainer friends or other breeders that I know, and you can find a good quality puppy. And I always tell people, don't buy a, don't buy a mule to run the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. <laughs> you know, buy good genetics. Start with good genes. The dog has to have the DNA in order to do what you want it to do. And just because it says AKC Labrador Retriever doesn't mean that it's got the genes to become a good duck dog. Right. And just because the owners of the, the the parents say that they're good duck dogs doesn't tell me enough about the trainability of those dogs. Yeah. On the flip side, real quick, do you ever see a dog that maybe doesn't have a good bloodline that is actually turned yes. out to be a great dog? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Now, I will say it's probably a small percentage mm-hmm. from that standpoint because, again, you want good genetics, and that gives you a better chance there's no guarantees because I have seen dogs that had great genetics that just didn't get the gene. Mm. It didn't get the genes the rest of the puppies got. Um, but your, you know, your question is the opposite of that. And yes, I have seen that. Again, it's rare, and I don't encourage people to get a puppy out of the Walmart parking lot right. for free <laughs> uh, because you're going to be feeding that thing for ten or fourteen years, and you know you want to have a good one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had a dog uh, two years ago, and uh, there's several videos of him on on my YouTube page. Uh, and his name was Deke. Uh, I've had several Deeks, but this was this particular dog's name was Deke. And so the guy <clears throat> had contacted me and said, hey, I've got this dog. He's two years old. And, of course, I'm like, oh, okay, um, we'll see how this is going to turn out. Mm-hmm. And he said, would you at least keep him for a little while and just see if you can do anything with him? I said, sure. Yeah. So, so I said, look, let me have him for two weeks, and I'll, if he's got it in him, I can bring it out of him. If there's not anything in there, there's nothing for me to bring out. Mm-hmm. But if it's in there, I can I can get it out of him yeah. as far as drive and things like that. Because there are dogs that just hadn't had it brought out of them. It's just it's in them. And mm-hmm. um, and that's that, something you really can't teach a dog is drive. Right? No, it's you can always reel them back, but you can't pump it in them. No, you can't put it in them. It's either in them or it's not. Yeah. You're right. And uh, but he had a lot of drive. I mean, he was a freight train. And uh, and and ter- when turned out. Um, uh, the other the other thing they really have to have, they've got to have drive and they have to be willing to cooperate with you. Mm. They gotta be willing to be told what to do, you know. Right. And uh so <clears throat> anyway, I had him for about two weeks and I was like, This guy has got a ton of drive. I mean, he really he would just scratch up the gravel after a you know, a bumper you throw. Mm. And I said, Well, let's just you know, let me have him, let's just see how this how it goes for a month, you know. Let's do some obedience with him and let me see if he's willing to cooperate now, you know. We, he checked the box on drive. Let's see cooperation. And he was willing to cooperate, even at that age. He just liked to work. Yeah. He never had been worked. You know, he'd been sitting at home and not doing anything. Yeah. And uh, ended up, I mean, this dog turned out to be an incredible dog. I mean, you could run 
qualified all age level blinds with him in training and marks and you know we ran marks all over the place out here at the ranch that were you know 300 400 yards with him across all these rolling hills and you know he hit the water in long entries and just looked like a tank you know the water mm. fly you know it just was stylish and he was good looking um i mean he had just had a ton of everything good you know uh-huh. but yeah yeah i mean it's it's rare. It's the exception. It really was the exception. W- was he a Labrador retriever? Yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Black. Uh-huh. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Go- going on that, have you ever had any, or what are some cool breeds that you've either taught to be retrievers or took in, taken in as retriever dogs? Um. Well, I mean, I've done just about any retriever. I mean, everything from the Nova Scotia duck tollers <laughs> to curly coats, uh, curly coated retrievers, flat coated retrievers, Boykin spaniels, mm-hmm. um, Springer spaniel. I mean, just about it, all of them I've touched my hands on at some point, primarily mm-hmm. Labradors though. Yeah, right. But I'll tell you, um, <laughs> it's kind of a cool thing. I had an obedience dog last year <clears throat> that um, some some friends that I've gotten to know here in Northwest Arkansas they have a lot of uh, field trial dogs that, that they have and uh, but they had a um, beautiful black German Shepherd mm. his name is King King and you can look at it on <laughs> on my YouTube I think I remember you posting this yes, on Instagram it's, it's crazy so King and when they they I, I won't mention their names but when they brought him to me they said he thinks he's a Labrador. <laughs> he hangs out with our Labradors all the time, and and he loves to retrieve, and he swims great and, and all that. And I said, well, cool. You know, we'll use that. And I was just obedience training and uh, collar conditioning with e-collar okay. for him. And so I get him, and oh, my gosh. You throw a bumper, and he runs just as hard as the duck dogs would for it and bring it back. And, I mean, he loved it. He absolutely he was very motivated by it, you know. So we used that to our advantage as a, you know, motivation while we were obedience training and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And one day I was out teaching some young dogs uh, some new land blinds. And so the one way we teach that is we put a big white stake out there in the field to mark the spot, and we put out a lot of big white bumpers. So there's probably a pile of about 20 big white bumpers out in this very mowed pasture. Right. And I was actually uphill, or I was, I was uphill, the blind was downhill. And I had run all these young dogs on it. Excuse me. And... Um, I thought, as much as he likes to retrieve and as much as he loves bumpers, if I can get him to see that pile of bumpers, I bet you he will run out there and get one. <laughs> and this is 250 yards away from the pile. <laughs> yeah. And sure enough, I got him out. I let him go to the bathroom. And I, I had a little old short lead on him. And I turned him towards it. And I started walking towards the pile of bumpers. And all of a sudden, I saw his ears perk up, and he just locked in on his pile. And all I did was go, back. (laughs) And he didn't even know what back meant. He just knew he wanted to go get him a bumper. And here he goes flying across this field. It's 200, 250 yards across this field. And and I'm videoing it. (laughs) I was like, they've got to see this. And he's flying across this field. He gets him a bumper. And, of course, I look like a high school cheerleader out there, you know, cheering him on, you know, and good dog and all this stuff. Oh, yeah, it was great, you know. Sent it to the owners, and they were laughing and having a great time. We were laughing about it, and I said, guess what? Tomorrow, I'm going to run him at 350. Oh, and they're like, no, you're not. I was like, yeah, I am. <laughs> so I backed him all the way up in the same spot. You know, I was right there teaching these dogs, and, and I pulled him out. Sure enough, same thing. Aired no him out, 
turned him toward the bumpers and just started walking towards it. I saw those big black mm-hmm. ears of his perk up. And uh, he had come in from the Czech Republic. That's where he was from. Really? As a puppy. Yeah, they'd flown him in. He had his own, had his own passport. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, and, uh, anyway, great, you know, really well-bred yeah. dog. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but it just goes to show you what prey drive in general, you know, it mm-hmm. means so much to these dogs, or any dog. But, uh, anyway, 350 yards... <laughs> Same thing. I just talk, turned him towards the pile and started walking toward it. Saw the ears perk up. I said, back, and here he goes, he flying goes. across his pasture. And um, and uh, I videoed it, shared it with him. We had a great time with it. And I, I posted it on social media because it was just it's just kind of an anomaly. You know, it's really mm-hmm. fun, you know, to yeah. watch a dog. He's having a good time. He didn't know what he was doing, you know. And uh, it was uh, funny, uh, I think their their field trial trainer at the time, he was on there, and he, he responded, he goes, man, you're making me look bad. <laughs> I said, well, you might be on your truck at some point. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a sight to see pull up with oh, a German yeah. Shepherd. Good. I tell you what, he really, that dog was so talented, he was capable of being a duck dog. I actually got him to pick a pheasant up one day. Really? It took a little bit. He wasn't sure about the feathers, but it was really fun to to play with him with that stuff. Pull up to the duck hole with the German yeah, Shepherd. That's right. I <laughs> told him I said funny. Oh yeah, I told him I said I said, if y'all let me train him as a finished duck dog, I guarantee you I'm taking him home one hunt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're gonna video it. You yeah. know. But it was fun. It was just a it was just, you know, it was different and but I, I've had I've had Dobermans that I've obedience trained that had strong prey drive like that. They just love to retrieve. It's just that. And that's what make th- makes those dogs sometimes great detection dogs and, you know, and, and great police dogs. And it's that prey drive that's in them. And, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the genetics are, are, are key for yeah. all that. Yeah. And then, so how do you, do you have a process that you go through every time with, I know you, you mentioned every dog's different and you got to treat it, you know, as such. Right. But do you have a uh, a method or a process that you do to kind of figure out yes or no? Do they have it? Do they not? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I mean, really, again, what what I tell people when they when they call me about a puppy they've got, um, hopefully they get in touch with me early. You know, where I can kind of coach them. And there's several. There's a few videos that I point them to and that sort of thing. But I always tell them my biggest things when that dog shows up. The last thing any trainer wants to hear said when you show up with your dog at a trainer's is I didn't want to mess him up so I didn't do anything mm. well you already messed him up so to me the most important time in that dog's life is eight weeks to six months old mm. that whole puppy development stage is so important to get those dogs socialized to the world and introduced to all the new things you know they're they're new to the planet so everything's new to them and yeah. everything's can be scary, you know, and so we want them to be very well socialized. So that's the I, dirt work you're talking about. Yeah, you're building a house analogy. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I always tell them that to be a good duck dog, they have number one, they have to have good drive. They have to have. They've got to be crazy about retrieving. Just love it. They can't just like it, mm. you know. And, and what I've seen with people, and the great thing about cell phones now is, I'll ask them to send me some video. And I'll say, hey, shoot me some video of the dog mm-hmm. and uh, let me see their prey drive. If, if, if it's somebody away in a different state or something, you know, if they're local, I'll have them bring them by and let me look at them. Right. But <clears throat> they have to have a very strong prey drive. And, and my analogy that I'll tell them is if you were to throw that dog 10 retrieves in a row, I want that dog to look at me when I stopped at 10 and go, why aren't you throwing 11, 12, and 13? <laughs> you know, now we're not going to throw 10, 10 retrieves for a puppy. Right. But – it's a little sarcasm, but mm-hmm. that's the kind of drive a dog has to have to be a great duck dog, to to get out in the coldest of conditions and icy, you know, water and go get a duck that's diving and they've got a, you know, or 
crawl through the toughest, you know, cover and get that bird. I mean, they've got to have some, a little bit of, you know, they've got to have drive. They've got to want it. Mm-hmm. And again, you can't put it in them. And so they have to have that strong desire to retrieve. They have to be well socialized. So when they show up, I don't want them scared of the fact that they're in a new place. And I can always, I always tell people, dogs don't lie. Yeah. They lay their, ta- their cards on the table. So when they show up, they can tell me, the, the owners can tell me whatever they want to tell me, but that dog's going to tell me the truth. Mm. And they're going to tell me whether they're well socialized or not. So when they get out, if they're nervous about being there, I know that they hadn't gotten out of the backyard very often. Gotcha, yeah. They might have taken them to Pet Smart a couple of times, but they haven't really exposed that puppy to, you know, I always tell people, dogs need to see 100 new things, 100 new people, 100 new places in 100 days. Mm-hmm. You know, that's overstating mm-hmm. it, but it's, yeah. it's that important that they see that many new things. So socialization is huge. So you can't train a dog if they're in a nervous state of mind. So if they show up and they're nervous, how am I supposed to teach you one plus one Right. when you're worried about it? So they have to be comfortable and confident, and that means you have to get them out and expose them. So well-socialized, very strong desire to retrieve. I want them to, if it's warm enough, uh, you know, this time of year, it's still too cold to get puppies in the water. Mm. So if it's a winter puppy, you can't get them in and teach them to swim when they're little. It's just too cold because you can create an aversion to cold water with, okay. with puppies. They can actually start, start to not like it, right? Sure, yeah. yeah. Eight-week-old puppy, you know, definitely don't throw them in, yeah. you know, for crying out loud. Yeah. Unfortunately, some people do. But but we want – usually any any litters we ever had in the past when it was warm enough, we'd take mama down to the pond and let them – they would wade in and follow her in, you know, just like ducks. Yeah. Just follow mom right in, you know. So peer pressure, teach them – Water's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when they're winter puppies, they really can't get in the water early, you know, and sometimes it's five or six months of age before they ever get wet, you know, unless you can get them in some really ankle-deep water and let them retrieve. But I want them crazy about retrieving on land and water, and they need to be good swimmers. Mm-hmm. I mean, not all dogs swim good. You know, some of them look like we call them Maytag washing machines. They're out there splashing <laughs> around, and, you know, they're trying to get on top of the water, and they, don't, they can't swim good. So they've got to be able to swim well, crazy about retrieving, socialize, um, you should inter- have introduced them to treats, treat training obedience, you know, use some treats and taught them how to sit and heal and, you know, crate training them, potty training them, bringing them in the house, introducing them to kids, um, introducing them to somebody standing out in the field throwing for them. Uh, we're doing that right now. We've got a lot of young dogs in right now, and and most people don't have somebody to throw for them. Yeah, right. You're usually throwing it yourself. And these dogs that have, haven't had anybody stand out in the field and throw for them, this is a new concept for them. Some of them, it's not that hard for them, and we set them up for success. But others, it's like, ooh, this is like calculus. You know, I don't know yeah. really what to do. So yeah. you, you can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, anyway, the, the, those are the main things is that, the, you know, have they walked on a lead even? Mm-hmm. You know, some people hadn't even put a leash on their dog yet. And the first time you put a lead on them, they're, they're like walking an alligator. You know, <laughs> they're rolling. They don't know how to deal with the pressure of the leash. They don't know what it means, you know, so... That's the short answer of it is that, you know, they've got to have a strong drive to retrieve. They right. have to be well socialized. Introduce them to a little bit of obedience retreats, walking them on a leash, introduce them to the world. And then you're bringing me a dog or any trainer, a dog that is balanced at that point. They've got, they're happy. They love to retrieve. They're ready to work. Yeah. And so now we've got some tools that we can start with with them and really take them to school basically mm-hmm. at that yeah. point. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, that's uh, I'm I'm sure you could probably, we could probably do an entire episode just on on your methods and and going through your curriculum. <laughs> several episodes. I yeah. mean, <laughs> I'm sure we could talk for hours about that. It could that. get deep. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, one of one of the things that you kind of mentioned there, and then as we think about coming out here, you've got your kennel, 
in in Pea Ridge, but then right. you also bring dogs out here to Twelve Stones Ranch. Yeah, and um, is that a big part of what you do? Just getting dogs used to different environments, you training bet. them in different places. You bet. Yep. Why is that important? Well, dogs need to generalize things. You know, dogs are very place oriented, so. Um, and I, I train here and I have other properties that I train on as well, but you need to get dogs. A dog is so place oriented and I'm being a little sarcastic when I say it, but if you obedience trained your dog only in the house and then when you go outside, the dog thinks, well, I don't have to mind because they never make, I've never practiced it outside. Yeah. I've got a dog like that. Yeah. <laughs> that's how my dog is. Yeah. And that's how why people, you know, they can't walk their dogs half the time, you know, they drag them down the street. Yeah. But <clears throat> they have to especially duck dogs, they need to see a lot of different scenarios and concepts and things like that. And I won't go into a bunch of deep details of that, but they need to learn to generalize the commands that they've been taught so that they understand that no matter where they're at, that the rules are the rules. And they they have to have rules and boundaries and limitations. And those rules apply everywhere you go. Mm. But we have to take them to those places and remind them that you still have to be obedient here. And you still have to stop on the whistle here. You still have to take a hand signal in this pond. You know, I mean, you just have to do all those things in different places so that when they go somewhere different with their owners, they just think they have to be obedient. They have to stop on the whistle. They have to handle. They know, you know. And, um, and so that's, it's important to have places other than your own property to take them and show them some different, what we call different looks. Yeah. You know, rolling hills or different ponds and different concepts in water and different terrain and all those things. It's important that you show them something different, you know. Mm -hmm. You're never going to hunt in the same spot too. That's right. A lot of times the place is brand new for the dog too and they still have to listen. Yeah. Almost better there than they would, you know, in your backyard. That's right. That's Mm -hmm. right. So that's important to... To have access to somewhere other than your own property is very important. Right. And, uh, to you know, it's it's really a blessing to get to come out here because there's so many acres of yeah. <laughs> rolling hills and, you know, it's just insane. Yeah. Looks like you could run a field trial out here. You could. With all the rolling hills because that's like what field trials really are targeted towards, right? Those rolling hills. Well, and- the technicality really, I mean, of the different – the water, the complexity of different mm-hmm. ponds and points and islands and channels, and there's a whole lot of it things that go deep, in. Yeah, it? it gets very complex. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. so you need a lot of things that are, that will throw a dog off a straight line mm-hmm. in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, um, one of, one of the things that uh, I was looking at your website and you were talking, it was either um, another article you had done or someone had written about you. You were talking about the psychology of a dog and how dogs think and how. Um, you know, people treat dogs like people mm-hmm. and dogs treat people like dogs. That's right. And so, you know, there's there's kind of that disconnect there. Yep. But how do you do it to where you're you're communicating in a way that the dog understands? Well, you have to speak their language. And their language is pack mentality. And the problem that most people have, again, just like you said, and that was my comment, I believe you read. Yeah. People treat dogs like people. We humanize them. You know, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with that, but yeah. but there is that's where a lot of people's problems come from is because they do treat them like a kid a lot of times, and and I and I get it. People say, "Well, he's a member of the family." Totally understand that, but you ha- still have to look at it from a dog's perspective. They don't look at it like that. Mm. They look at if there's five members in the family and there's two dogs, as far as they're concerned, there's seven pack members, and that's the way they look at it. And so in their minds, they they go, "Okay." When I was born, there was eight of us in the litter. Yeah. And 
I had to figure out where I was at in the pecking order because there's only one leader in a pack. If you look at pack of wolves or coyotes or dogs, there's only one leader in that pack. And then it's a pecking order from there down. Okay. You mean you got one and then they figure out who's two and three and four and it goes from there. So, oh yeah. So an easy way to think about it is you've got dogs that are uh, front of the pack, middle of the pack and back of the pack kind of dogs. Okay. And so you got the dogs that are leaders. You got the ones in the middle that are kind of the team players, and they kind of keep everybody happy. Mm-hmm. And the ones at the bottom are a little more, usually a little more reserved, and maybe a little more shy. And it's kind of an oversimplified way of thinking about it. But right. if you look at a pack of or litter of puppies, that's really the way it's built: front, middle, and back of the pack. Okay. And so, so you have to communicate with those dogs on what they understand, and that is a pack mentality. They don't speak to each other. I mean, they sniff each other's rear ends to figure out who's who, you know. (laughs) That's who they figure out, you know. So they communicate through body language and energy. And so what we have to do is do the same thing in order for us to communicate to them on that level. We teach them commands and things like that. Sure. But if you have a, let's just say you have a really high-energy dog, it's a fire-breathing dragon, as we call them. They're just a little hard to handle, you know. And you're a soft-spoken you know, easygoing individual, this dog is going to rule you. <laughs> you know, it's going to be the roof ruler of the house for yeah, sure. right. Um, because it looks at that as a weakness. You know, it, it's saying, okay, well, somebody's got me in charge of the pack, even if it's just a dog and a, one person. Who's in charge here? They don't have any choice other than to go, okay, if you're not telling me what to do, then I have to tell the pack what to do because that's how they survive innately, you know, from a wolf standpoint and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That all that DNA is coming out of them. Right. And so they have to go, okay, if you're not telling me what to do, then I'm going to tell you what to do. (laughs) And then that's where the problem is. That's not what you want. That's right. Yeah. And so we have to communicate to them with our body language and our energy. And what I tell people is that we have to be, as a handler, you can't be getting mad at your dog and yelling at your dog and coercing, using coercion, you know, uh, raising your voice, changing your tone, all that stuff doesn't work. You might get one or two little, you know, might get the dog to work for you a couple of times, but but you have to use your body language and energy to really control, um, be calm but assertive. Mm. As the dog, we want the dog to be calm but submissive. So for a dominant dog, that's a hard thing to do. Yeah, They're used to telling everybody what to do because they grew up in a, in a litter of puppies where they told the entire litter what to do, and they ate first, and they knocked everybody out of the way to get to the food bowl first. Pull up on YouTube and watch a pack of wolves eating a dead elk. Watch the, the pack leader and mm-hmm. watch how everybody else is staying back out of the way. Yeah. And mm-hmm. if they even come into his personal space or a little bit, there's a growl, there's a warning. And if they keep coming, guess what? It's going to be a bite. And yeah. It ain't going to be mm-hmm. friendly, you know. So they, they use their body language, you know, the growl, the posturing, you know, all those things, everything from being dominant to being submissive. You have to learn those postures and, and what the dog's communicating to you as well. Yeah. So that you know whether to be more firm with that dog or you need to be less, you know, uh, assertive. Some dogs are sensitive and soft. Those dogs, you can't be overly assertive with them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and to give you an example, I had a guy years and years ago, he called me and said, hey, I've got a, I don't know if he trained a dog or somebody else trained it, but it, he just, he wasn't, he couldn't handle it. <clears throat> and he said, would you mind looking at the dog and just, tell me what's wrong with the dog. And I said, sure. So he comes out, and this guy gets out of the truck. He's huge. I mean, he could have been a tight end in the NFL. <laughs> Big guy, you yeah. know, very overbearing, you know, loud. Just in general, he wasn't trying to be loud, but he's loud. Yeah. 
And he opens a crate, and this little old 50-pound little female jumps out, and she's just as friendly and soft as she can be. And he goes, sit. I mean, very firmly, and she just hits the deck. You know, I mean, just the wheels came out from under the bus right then. Right. And she loved her tree and did all that. And I, and I told him, he was asking what's wrong with her, and I said, nothing wrong with the dog. I said, it's the way you're handling her. I said, you can't be overly assertive with her. You've got to flip some toggle switches in your own self to adjust to her because you're too much for her. She just can't handle that. So you've got to be a little more subdued with her and be a little more uh, loving and, and friendly with her and baby her a little bit. <laughs> yeah. you got to handle her with kid gloves. Yeah. You know? I said, so it's going to be hard for you to adjust your personality to fit hers. And the flip side, I've had people that had an overbearing dog and they were very soft-spoken and they couldn't couldn't get the dog to listen to him or mind. And I'm like, you're going to step up your game. Because, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> again, it goes back to that pack mentality. That dog is taking charge. And if you don't step it up, they're going to continue to take charge and, mm-hmm. and, and rule the roost, basically. Yeah. Uh, so it, it can go either way. You can be, you can be too overbearing with a, a very sensitive dog and you can not be assertive enough with an overbearing dog. Yeah. You know, and so... That's the language they speak is body language and energy, mm-hmm. and it's the pack mentality that's so important that I really try to stress to my clients, if you don't get that part, you're never going to understand really the personality of your dog, and you don't know who you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you got a Labrador Retriever. Yeah, he's a duck dog. Yeah, he loves to retrieve. But what's under the hood? When you pop the hood of the car, what kind of motor are we dealing with? What's the personality like? You know, Who's that? Who's that kid in the back of the class? That kind of thing, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. You really have to know that personality, of that dog, and and that tells you how you really need to approach that dog and and handle that dog in general, day to day. You know, as to whether to give him a little leeway or or no. I need to. I've got to keep. I've got to keep the screws tight on this dog. You know. So yeah, it took me a while to learn that with my dog. My dog's very submissive. Like if she's a fifty pound, you know, little yeah. female, and she gets really sensitive. And it was my first retriever that I was training myself and I was hard on her you know as she was a puppy and and then she kind of you know she didn't lose her drive or desire but she didn't want to be there as much you know whenever I was hard on her took me a while to learn that and and learn the best way to get her to listen to me without being assertive that's right um but yeah just going to your point each dog is very different and you know some dogs need it and some dogs don't but that's right that's right I mean it's 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 really the key. I mean, you have to learn. I always tell people, you got to learn how to, you bought the plane, you got to know, you got to learn how to fly it. And so it's important to learn all the steps and learn the drills that you need to do and all that. But you really have to learn do I push this dog or do I back off? You know, I mean, you have to know. And sometimes egos get in the way. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes people get frustrated. And guess what? We tend to put all the pressure on the dog then, mm-hmm. you know, and that's unfortunate that people do that. And they get mad at their dog, and and you know there's some consequences to that when you do that. And yeah. sometimes you can fix that, and sometimes you can't. Mm-hmm. So we always tell people be firm, but fa- I mean be firm but fair. Right. I mean, so we're our our goal is to not use any pressure. That's the ultimate goal, and to teach the dog how to avoid it by being compliant. But there's times when you have to show them the difference, you know, between right and wrong, mm-hmm. the right answer and the wrong answer. Yeah. And not everything's a felony. I always tell people, we got warnings, misdemeanors, and felonies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to me, a felony is one that we've got a really good dog that truly understands what he's doing, and he just says, nah, I'm not yeah. doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's when you're, you're more firm with that dog, but you always back off. You still go back down and show them the, the comparison of, here's, here's the right answer. Just because you said, no, I ain't doing it, 
and you know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, that's different. But people will put pressure on a dog, and they really don't. Under- the dog doesn't understand what they're talking about. Yeah. And they get mad at him because the dog's not listening because the distraction level got it more exciting. You know, it's like taking a kid to Disneyland. You're going, okay, don't get too excited now. Stay with mom and dad, you know. And <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen. So you get on your first duck hunt, and guess what happens? The dog goes, oh, this is fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you had not done your homework, no obedience training the dog or anything. You got them out there, and guess what? They're just going to do what they want to do because their brain is going through the roof. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of lot of things that go into communicating with your, with your dog. But first and foremost, you have to understand pack mentality, number one, in order to progress through and understand how that dog views you mm-hmm. and how that dog views other dogs and how it, you know, can you don't, you know, you don't put two dominant mature males together unattended. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to turn out too well because <laughs> yeah. they have to figure out the pecking order mm-hmm. when they get together. They have to, they don't have any choice. I mean, that's going to happen. But if it's two middle of the pack dogs, they're probably going to have fun and play with each other. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you know, if you got a, a overbearing dog and a and a back of the pack kind of dog, that dog's probably gonna shy away from that dog because it's a little too overbearing for it. Do you do you give um handlers or the owners of the dogs, do you give them kind of like a packet when once their dog leaves of like, hey, here's something, you know, here's things about your dog you need to know. And how much time do you spend with the actual owner of the dog once you go through all this work to train this this pup? Well, I always tell people you get out of what you put into it. So I, I tell all my clients they're welcome to come out any time that I'm uh, that I'm training, and it's it's very important for them to understand how to handle the dog. Just because you send a dog off to a trainer, it's not like a car. You put the key in, start it up, and drive it. When you go pick it up, you have to understand how to fly the plane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I spend a lot of time with the owners as much as I can. I mean, there's days when I don't need anybody out there to be honest. So I need to be one on one with dogs and focused on what we're doing and that sort of thing. But I do have a lot of clients that come out and some of them come out and throw birds, you know what I mean? And they learn a lot from that. And uh, I've got one guy right now that is spending a lot of time out at the kennel and he's got a lot of free time and he comes out and throws birds almost every day. Mm-hmm. And every day he tells me, I learned something new. I learned some, you know, the way you handled that dog or, or the way that dog hunted on a mark versus the other dog. I mean, he's just taking it all in and yeah. learning. And so, to me, handler education is more important than me training the dog. If I can't get you to do as well as I can do with the dog or somewhere close, then we're wasting our time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, it's like anything else. It's like I, we have two horses at our house. One of them's an old roping horse. Well, I don't rope. It's my father-in-law's old roping horse, but he's a really good roping horse. I get on him. I'm not going to get much out of him because <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Right. I'm not going to get on him riding, but if I want to rope, I'm not, he's not gonna, I'm not going to get the most out of him. You put somebody on that knows how to rope, he's gonna, you're going to see what yeah. he's capable of doing. Same thing with the dogs. The dogs are always going to respond better to the trainer because of our experience sure. and knowing how to handle those dogs. And then the owners have got to do their due diligence in educating themselves and also getting in there and learning how to handle those dogs. And so when people come out, what I do is I'll, people will ask me, you know, when can we see our dog? And I'll go, you can come see them anytime, but you're coming to work. Mm-hmm. I want them to come out and learn. Yeah. We don't really have time for people to show up and just pet their dog. I mean, it's we're busy. We're working. We're trying to train these dogs. And so social visits are hard to squeeze in. It's just not feasible, you know, to have people come out and let's stand around for an hour and watch you pet the dog. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I tell them we come out and work, and I have them handle dogs when they come out. And so they're going to handle everything from a master hunter all the way down to started dogs, mm-hmm before they ever put their hands on their dog. 
So they work out all the kinks and the nervousness, and they don't want to mess up on a eight-year-old master hunter mm-hmm. that walks up there and goes, okay, throw the marks. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, right. You know, it's like putting a plane on autopilot. Yeah. And so it allows them to go through the motions and get their reps. They need those reps. Mm-hmm. They need to learn the my the way I say, uh, my, the way my voice is inflected and, and um, the way I put my hand down and the mechanics of how we handle the dog. They have to learn all those things. Because if they're not doing the same sequence in the way I'm doing it, then the dog's going to go, something's not right. Right, yeah. This is not the same flow. This doesn't feel normal. And mm-hmm. then sometimes you get a soft dog and they start getting nervous. And I bet you experienced that mm-hmm. with yours, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had no idea. Whenever I uh, sent my dog off to be trained, you know, I hadn't seen her in four months or so, picked her up. All of a sudden, I didn't know how to handle the dog. I've sure. never really handled, you know, a seasoned dog. Sure. Not, not a finished dog, but a seasoned dog or yeah. anything you know, really any caliber. And, and there was a big learning curve. It was almost like I had to do more training then than I yep. ever have, you know, after that. That's right. That's but. right. So, yeah, it's, it's so important for people to come out. So we have them come out and they handle dogs, yeah. you know, and I'll show them. We're putting the, Here's how we put the e-collar on. We put the pinch collar on and we take them and we air them out. We show them that whole sequence of events that we do prior to getting up there to go run the marks or run the blinds or whatever or do the drills, you know, that wagon, that 16 bumper wagon wheel drill that you said you watched on my YouTube yep. page. I can't tell you how many times I've had clients run that with an advanced dog because it's so easy to run that with a dog that knows how to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can mess up a little bit with those dogs and, you know, and they don't, they don't punish you for it. You know, they're forgiving. Whereas if you're trying to do it with your dog, and I always tell people, we can't have the student handling the student. Mm-hmm. It didn't work. I can't have a dog that's still learning and you up here handling it because mm-hmm. you're, you don't know what you're doing. The dog doesn't know what's doing. What are we getting out of that? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. You know, bad habits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Teaching the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So uh, we put a big emphasis on handler education because it's, it's, it's just paramount. I mean, they have to know how to handle that dog. And so we take them through the steps, and, and I tell them, I expect the same effort out of you that your dog is giving to you. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not thinking and learning and trying to be a better handler, don't expect your dog to um, be a better dog. He's going to drop down to your level of knowledge. Right. So I always tell people, there's not a dog in that kennel that wants to be a trained dog. They just want to be a dog. <laughs> yeah. None yeah. of them out there want to, none of them want to sit steady for a shot duck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they want to go get it. They and want to run around and swim <laughs> and it's play. Not, yeah, it's fun. You know, get out there and go, go when they want to. So, so it's your job to learn how to handle that dog and and they will drop down to your level of knowledge real quick mm-hmm. because yeah. it's easy. Yeah. And they see through you like that. I mean, the thing about it, they again, the way they communicate body language and energy. And once they see you're nervous and you're trying you're not sure about what you're doing, they go, "Oh, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's doing." <laughs> yeah. And so then they start taking over and you start seeing a dog and all of a sudden they go, well, why is he doing this now? He didn't used to do that. And I'll go, well, he's dropping down to your level is what he's doing. Right. And he's just making his own rules in some cases. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's huge. But, yeah. But we, we do, we try to do the best we can and educate those people on how to handle. And, and really uh, through all the years, you know, the kind of the, I think the thing that helps me a lot with all my years of dealing with people from physical therapy and and dealing with different family members, I mean, because I always tell people I train more people than I do the dogs because there might be two to five people in a family that show up and they want to learn how to handle the dog. 
Well, they're all got different personalities. Mm, yeah, that's tough. Yeah, and so you're dealing with everybody from somebody that's laid back, easy going, to somebody that overthinks everything. And you got to communicate that same information that they need to know in a way that they understand it and they can relate to it. And some people, that's difficult to do. And some people let their egos get in the way. Yeah. And I really, I don't have a problem telling them very candidly and very um, 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 nicely <laughs> yeah. that they need to leave their ego at the door with when you're handling your dog. I mean, you have to be, you've got to be a team player. You have to be an assertive and calm leader for that dog because that's what the dog expects out of you. And if they're not getting that, you're not fulfilling all their needs. And so it's sometimes it's hard for people and, and be honest, a lot of times the kids are the easiest ones to train. They mm-hmm. don't think about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll tell them, okay, grab the leash and take them and walk and let's do some heel and whatever, you know, we're working on. Yeah. And they just, you get a little bossy, you know, four-year-old, yeah. and they'll grab the leash and go, here, and, and just take <laughs> off. <laughs> you know, and dad is over there struggling and tripping over himself <laughs> to try to get the dog to sit and heal. And, and he's going, okay, how many Post-it notes do I have to put on the front door to remember all this stuff before we leave and all and i'm going you're way overthinking yeah, this, you know yeah anyway yeah. yeah it's very important handler education is huge gotcha i'll, I'll give you i'll give you one last uh, maybe softball question here and i'll just kind of ask you in general thinking thinking about it personally why do you think you're so passionate about passionate about working with dogs and and also working with those people obviously you get to connect with a lot of different people what do you think you know keeps you coming back and and what do you think makes you love it so much well, I, mean, I, you know, I've, I grew up with it. Obviously, like I said in the beginning, I mean, it's it's in my it's in my DNA, you know, from from uh, roots, you know, all the way back, um, and it's a it's a big motivation for me. I mean, I, I love doing it. I love people. Mm-hmm. I really get a lot of enjoyment out of seeing people take their dog on their first hunt. And you see that light bulb go off in the dog's head when they start watching the sky for the first time. And, you know, hunting season's always fun because the phone's going off with pictures and videos of the dog on their longest retrieve or a big pile of mallards that they picked up and all the buddies were talking about how great the dog is and how this retrieve was fantastic and the dog dove under the water. And, you know, all that kind of stuff is just rewarding from that standpoint. So there's a motivation uh, for me from that standpoint. And, um, but, you know, I just love it. I mean, I love the dogs. I love the people. I, I do think it's a little bit of a calling. I think, I think for me, God uses me in a way to touch people's lives in a different manner, you know, and just, um, allowing them to see, you know, what his creation is capable of, of doing and, mm-hmm. and interacting with them in that manner. And it's a positive thing. And, you know, hopefully they see him living in my life a little bit, um, not perfect by any means, but yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I do feel like there's a little bit of a calling there, and it's again, it's 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 deep rooted in my DNA, and mm. you know, it's just something I love. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I can tell just from hearing you talk about it how passionate you are about it, and um, it's it's really cool. I think your your success and and the many years you've done it, you know, shows that too as well, and um, you know. If I ever need a dog trained, you're the first guy I'm calling. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Turn your, he might turn your GSP into a oh, retrieved duck yeah. dog. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we'll, see. we'll talk about that. Yeah, I don't know about that either. Um, but that's all we got for you. I, again, I appreciate you for having us out here, and it's been fun hanging out with you. Yeah, no, I loved it. I, I, uh, anytime, I'm, you know, I like, uh, unfortunately, I like to talk too much. <laughs> we, need to, we need to come back on and do like a, 
a full walkthrough of like maybe a curriculum and something where yeah. we can go in, in depth a little bit. Because yeah. I imagine a lot of our listeners, they're, they're not super knowledgeable about dog training and, and, you know, these retriever, these hunt tests and stuff like sure. that. Yeah. But just to even hear about it and learn about it. Yeah. And then maybe, you know, we pique someone's interest and yeah. they want to learn more about mm-hmm. it and kind of do their own thing. And you post a lot on social media, right? Yeah. Instagram. So how can they find you or get a hold of you? Yeah, you can look on social, you know, pretty much any of it. Uh, I've got uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, YouTube, uh, TikTok even. And uh, yeah, really? yeah it's, I don't uh, even have a TikTok. Un- well, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, these days in business, I mean, you social media is right. You just about have to have it. Yeah. Um, so it's time consuming because <laughs> when I want to be resting at home, sometimes you're having to post stuff, but yeah. it's part of doing business. But yeah, you can look on uh, Retriever Ridge Kennels. You can search any of those and, and find me. And, uh, you know, as they say, like, follow, and subscribe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I've, I've enjoyed being here, and I appreciate and flattered that you invited me to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. We had fun, and uh, like I said, we'll have you on sometime in the future. Yeah, I'd love to do it. Cool. Sounds good. Thanks, everyone, for listening. That's all we got for you guys, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is hosted by Kyle V, co-hosted by Adam Treese and Kyle Plunkett, and produced by Daniel Matthews. To sponsor an episode or for general advertising inquiries, reach out to us at the Ozark Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time. This podcast is presented by Inland Outdoors.